0: Welcome to the Dispatch podcast. I'm Adam Livernarity, I'm the digital producer at The Dispatch, and today I'm joined by Tomer Persico. Tomer is an Israeli public intellectual and social commentator as well as a religion scholar. Tomer serves as a research fellow at the Shalom Hartman Institute in Jerusalem and was a visiting professor at the UC Berkeley Institute for Jewish Law and Israel Studies. He joins me today to break down the elections that took place in Israel this week, Benjamin Netanyahu's comeback, and the rise of religious nationalism. Right in, as Sarah says. So the reason I was rolled out of the dungeon at the pits of Jonah's fortress, where most of the podcast production happens, is because I I grew up in Jerusalem and it's where I had my start in journalism. And Tomer is one of the most interesting political and social commentators in Israel that I love uh, listening to and often disagreeing with. So Tomer, thank you for joining us. Thanks, Adam, for inviting me. So before we go into the elections. Let's just make sure that we understand what we're talking about when we say the left and the right in Israel, because they're not exactly the same as the American left and right. For instance, you are deeply religious. You are an observant Jew and you consider religion to be a core part of your identity and your politics. But also you are on the liberal side of the spectrum, maybe classically liberal. So maybe for table setting, tell me where you see the political divide in Israel right now.
1: So, okay, I don't think there's a lot of difference, uh, I mean, relating to what you said. There's a huge correlation also in Israel between the political right and the religious uh, public. Uh, In fact, uh, many surveys have shown that a a very useful parameter to understand uh, political right or left cleanings is how religious is the person. So, So I'm a bit of a sort of rarity also in Israel. But for me, I'm I'm religious. I'm not orthodox. I consider myself a traditional Jew. I also observe many of the commandments of the Jewish law. But I'm also a liberal and very dedicated to liberalism. and And there is a connection there because I grew up in a secular family, even an atheist family. And my way to religion was facilitated through the the freedom I had to investigate, to research, to go and experience religious life in different places. I went to India. I was there for a long time. It was through pluralism rather than coercion that you got to religion. Yes. And, and I'm very happy about it. I think, I mean, it changed my life for the better. And so I want everybody to have that chance to to have no religious coercion and to be able to investigate and, and explore and engage and, and uh, see what happens.
0: And again, when Tomori's talking about liberalism, it's in the Israeli vein, which in America would probably be called classical liberalism, the tradition of the Enlightenment.
1: Yeah, basically rights discourse, uh, individual autonomy, and the public sphere that is, you know, uh, um, protected from coercion, protected from state, also intervention, etc.
0: Okay, into politics. Israel this week had its fifth election in three years. I think it looks like this time it's going to stick. Fifth times to charm. What's going on there, Tomero? Why is this a big deal?
1: (laughs) What's going on is a very dramatic victory by Netanyahu's bloc, uh, um, which was, you know, I mean, it's dramatic because Netanyahu has has a resounding victory. He can do basically whatever he wants. And what he wants basically is a complete rehash of the Israeli judiciary, the judicial system. He wants to make the position of the Supreme Court much weaker. He wants perhaps to eliminate a felony that we have that's called public fraud. For which he's currently indicted. He is indicted for, he is on trial for at this time. I mean, many many such changes that will you know I, I I don't think it's too dramatic to say that we'll change the structure of the Israeli state we'll make it I mean as it were a second republic so that is one people are also bracing for religious changes Netanyahu got to power on the backs of a lot of traditional religious and ultra orthodox citizens of Israel that want to want changes in many 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 parts of the Israeli public sphere
0: You're talking about parties that want to see the state govern according to religious ideas. And for, I guess, American ears, this might echo the post-liberal common good movement in the U.S. that wish to reduce the secular nature of the state and have more religious elements, coercive religious elements introduced into the menu.
1: Yes, a much more coercive religious state. They want to disallow pride parade. Uh, also on the Sabbath, things will stop working. Uh, you know, it, it's uh, it's. there's a whole list of things they want to do. I'm not saying they will do everything that they want. But this is definitely the, the direction that they want to take Israel. And again, they have the power to do it now.
0: So let's take a step back. Israel is a parliamentary system where in order to attain power, a party must figure out how to form a coalition of at least 61 parliamentary seats out of 120. Before this cycle, we had four elections in which no party was able to form a stable majority. That's right. And that led to a couple of years of rapid tug and pull between the Netanyahu bloc and the anti-Netanyahu bloc.
1: And here it's important to understand, we don't have for the last five years a runs of election, we don't have a clear left and right division between the blocks that wish to form a government. It's an anti-Netanyahu and a Netanyahu division. Really, Netanyahu is running on a populist ticket of, I represent the will of the authentic, simple Israeli and the more Jewish and faithful bloc. And the other side runs on a ticket of we represent law and order and a liberal public sphere and equality before the law.
0: Okay, so let's take these apart. Number one, you said
1: law and order. That refers to the
0: fact that Netanyahu is currently on trial for breach of public trust. And so the trial and the investigation and the indictment by the public prosecutors have all been central to his campaign, claiming, to borrow a phrase, that it was a
1: political witch hunt. That's right. But, but let's uh, make this uh, very exact. Netanyahu was always a divisive character. Uh, I mean, contentions. But this move towards pro or anti-Bibi as the main question of each election happened only after he refused to step down when he was indicted and later trialed. We had a norm in Israel that prime ministers who are indicted step down and, you know, um, conduct their trial, not from the position of of, uh, the the prime minister's office. And Netanyahu wouldn't. And so from that moment, the whole political arena shifted towards either your pro-law and order and equality before the law and norms and values that we hold dear, and the will of the people—they want Bibi—and so, whatever happens with the trial, it really doesn't matter because it anyway. It, these are preposterous allegations, and Netanyahu should rule as much as he can with the popular vote. Right? These are the two blocks, and it happened right there when Netanyahu refused to step down. And what were the allegations exactly? So basically, he has—I think—three different trial cases with different allegations of fraud, a breach of trust, and bribery
0: mostly alleged graft and the occasional pressuring of media companies uh, to induce positive coverage. But I also had a chance to interview a lot of people from the Israeli judicial system who actually do think that the investigations against Netanyahu were somewhat overzealous Mm -hmm. and potentially even politically motivated. And they point to the fact that Many of the allegations have fizzled out.
1: Yeah, so I don't. I do want to rule out that there are that there is no truth in that at all. I think I think there was some overzealotry, let's say, but but having said that, there is also some truth. There is also some actual content to these allegations that you now himself recorded himself offering a a, a publisher, a, a head of the biggest newspaper in Israel, um to limit the spread of another newspaper in exchange for good coverage this was a recording he did himself right of course not not wanting to for it to to leak out uh, so i mean you know there's there's some some substance here
0: but the real question and i think this is something that kind of echoes right now in the us as the justice department considers whether to bring charges against trump is this enough to bring a case against Uh, prime minister, former prime minister, somebody who is running for office and potentially interceding in his political career, especially when he's enjoying such popular support?
1: It's a question of populist rule versus lawful norms. I mean, and it's it's a serious question. Is a leader that is so popular among his base that has a majority in parliament, should that leader be taken down over, you know, Breaches of the law that are relatively minor. That are, you know, he didn't rape anybody, right? So, and I think it's an important question that we should consider.
0: And just to give this a little more spice, in 2009, the Israeli Prime Minister Ehud Ulmert actually stepped down after similar allegations of misconduct were raised against him. He was tried and served time in prison, but politics being what it is, Netanyahu was one of the most vehement voices at the time that insisted that Olmert must
1: step down, given the allegations. That's right. Now, Olmert, Olmert's case was much more clear-cut. He took envelopes of money in exchange for eh, allowing some contractor to build uh, a hideous building.
0: Yes, that was while he was mayor of Jerusalem. And I can attest, as a Jerusalemite, that the building is indeed hideous. Yeah, it's
1: it's, it's yeah. terrible. But, and really, again, Olmert stepped down the minute the police told him that he there are there is a serious case against him. He stepped down, and Taniau did not. This is the main difference.
0: So the real big story that was catching people's attention around the world was the rise of the dit party, which literally translates to Jewish might. Something I can't say without cringing. Esther Eaton wrote for The Morning Dispatch a great summary of the party's success and its leader, Itamar ben and I'll link to it in the show notes. So the party is basically an extreme version of Israel's messianic religious nationalism movement. For years, it's been in the fringe, and now it's the third largest party in parliament, out of 10 who made the cutoff. Can you give us a little bit of history and explain why these elections were so dramatic in this sense.
1: Okay. If we want to understand the uh, Otzmai Yehudit, we need to go back to the 80s when an American Jew called Meir Kahana, Rabbi Meir Kahana, immigrated to Israel and founded the Kah Party. Kah, which might be translated as "thus," The Kah Party had enough votes to to enter parliament and Kahana was a, a member of parliament. And while there, basically tried to um, realize his... I can only say rabidly racist uh, ideology. He suggested laws such as segregated beaches. He suggested that a law that that said that non-Jews cannot live in the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem should be a Jewish, a purely Jewish city.
0: To be clear, when you're talking about racism, you're not talking about the way it's sometimes used in the American discourse, watered down, but full-fledged racism. Real segregation between Jews and non-Jews, not to mention the forced expulsion of Arab Israelis.
1: This is a racist theory, ideology that this person has of Jewish superiority as the chosen people and, uh, and non-Jewish inferiority and especially uh, Arab uh, inferiority, which needs to be you know, implemented by law in Israel. The Israel political system was shocked and uh, it took only a few years before the law, the election law in Israel was amended and forbid such racist parties from entering parliament. That happens in 1988. And indeed, Kahana was, was you know, next elections, he couldn't, he could, simply could not uh, uh, be a contender and he, he was out. Uh, He continued, you know, distributing his ideology until he was assassinated in 1990 by a Palestinian. So that's Kahana. But his his ideas, of course, lived on and uh, in in the Kach uh, movement, which later changed forms because it was anathematized. That's right. And Itamar Ben-Gvir, our current uh, protagonist, was a member of the Kach movement in its different forms from an early age.
0: Now, once again, Itamar Ben-Gvir is the current leader of Utsmayudit, which is the sister party of religious Zionism, which together form the third biggest party in parliament. Which means, without getting too technical, that Itamar Ben-Gvir is one of the most powerful players in politics after these elections.
1: That's right. Now, Ben-Gvir... If you ask an Israeli where where did his face first appear, it's uh, in a news item about him as an 18-year-old ripping off the emblem of the governmental Cadillac that Prime Minister Rabin was driven around in. And he was holding the, the emblem, the Cadillac symbol sort of to the camera and saying, just as we got to this symbol, we will get to Rabin. And indeed, we all know that Rabin was assassinated, not by ben Gurion, of course, but another...
0: By Rabin, you mean Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin of the Labour Party, who was assassinated in 1995 by a member of the Jewish nationalist movement.
1: 95, actually the 4th of November, 95, exactly this day, uh, that year. So that's the first time the Israeli public met ben Now when we um, studied law, he became a lawyer, he defended many uh, Jews accused of terrorist activity or, uh, of different sorts. And he was for a long time ostracized by the political system, even by religious Zionism, which he now runs with, right? In fact, it was only two years ago when Netanyahu had to, you know, bend a lot of arms and, uh, and extend... Not light pressure, in order for religious Zionists to agree to run with ben So we need to know, ben though being an an Orthodox, uh, a religious Jew and, or, and and a Zionist in his way, is not part of mainstream religious Zionism. In fact, Kahana, the whole Kach party, and Ben-Gvir and his friends were always ostracized by the mainstream religious Zionist. Uh, movement, and public. And two years ago, when Netanyahu understood that he would need every single vote in order to uh, defeat the other bloc of parties, he made Ben into a legitimate uh, partner to run with. He forced him on the Religious Zionist Party. This was already a few cycles uh, ago, but, you know, just two years ago. And from then on, religious Zionism uh, was running with uh, Ben-Gvir in the same political party. So when you say legitimized him,
0: the relationship between Netanyahu and Ben-Gvir has been cagey at best, because Netanyahu sometimes says Ben-Gvir has no place in government, and then three days before the election says, actually, you know what, I would consider him as my police minister.
1: This is a gradual process that is happening over the last two years. Ben-Gvir went from being totally taboo to being totally legitimate as the police minister.
0: So can you talk about the gradual stages, not just from the BB side, because there's always a difficulty in determining how much of it is intentionally, strategically pulled by Netanyahu at the top, and how much is it Netanyahu responding to
1: trends from the public? You know, uh, it's a difficult story to tell because it, it's a dynamic that feeds itself. And, you know, I would compare it to Trumpism. A person comes to the political arena that is totally loud, vulgar, uh, norm-breaking. And at first people are saying, well, you know, this can't be accepted. Of course, nobody will, this can't be put up with and, and, and we will just uh, uh, have to reject him outright. And then The public likes it and things are changing. He is not being rejected and he simply becomes the mainstream.
0: You say he's mainstreamed partly because these elections saw the highest voter turnout in decades, which was reflected in Utsmayudit or the joint party that it belongs to, doubling its power in one election cycle.
1: And it is totally It's totally Ben Gvir's uh, credit. I mean, uh, he, again, like Trump, got people out of the House to vote which had not voted before at all.
0: Now, part of it is because last summer there were riots around the country between Jews and Arab Israelis that really rattled the population, and Ben-Gvir definitely knew how to capitalize on the animosity that it engendered. But should we take the message from this that Israeli society is opening up or warming up to
1: extreme nationalism? So, asked if, uh, whether a large part of the Israeli society is Kahanist, I would say definitely not. Definitely not such racist and anti-democratic and and anti-liberal. But, When this option is presented to many as a legitimate person to be voted into parliament, many people will jump on this and do it. Again, not because they are ideologically Kahanist, but it's it's an outsider. He's a maverick, as it were. He will change the system. He's also incredibly charismatic in a Yui Long kind of way. Yeah, he knows media. He is an ace in media manipulation. Right. He knows what he's doing very well.
0: I mean, one thing that it seems to be the truth of politics increasingly around the world is that pissing off the media pays dividends. Yeah,
1: And yes. he just knows how to trigger Israeli media. Yes. Pissing off anybody grants you dividends. Just saying outrageous things gets you attention, gets you ratings, gets you clicks. And the media loves it. And so it's, a, again, it's a self-feeding cycle. He's being legitimized. Then he says some even more outrageous thing. And everybody, there's a great hoo how about it. But he just gets bigger and bigger, inflated and inflated. And we see what it, what happens at the end of this election cycle.
0: Let's give it more context. Ben Gvere claims that he has moderated his views. Yeah. He says that he has divorced himself from hardcore Kahanism, he no longer promotes the force expulsion of Arab Israelis. Yeah, yeah. On the yeah. other hand, he seems to be very strong on revoking the citizenship of Arab Israelis
1: who've committed crimes against Jews. Not only Arab Israelis, also, but also Jews, by the way. He talked about Ofer Ksif, a um, parliament member from the Hadash party, the uh, extreme left uh, communist party in Israel.
0: Under what logic that being part of the Hadash party, ipso facto makes you a traitor? Yeah, traitors can't be tolerated, you know. Which means that they should be made stateless individuals. Exactly,
1: and expelled from Israel.
0: I highly recommend to our, our avid listeners to read Hannah Arendt's chapter about stateless people in the origins of totalitarianism for, um, for context of why this is not a great idea. <laughs>
1: No, it's not a great idea. I, but 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 just to to address Ben Gvir's uh, change, as it were, the man said only five years ago that every word that Mayor Kahana, right, the Ka- the Kach leader, said is relevant and uh, uh, good for this day. He said only three years ago that the only difference between him and Kahana is that he is handed over a microphone, a microphone, and that Kahana couldn't get such publicity. Only two years ago, he still had on the wall of his living room a big photograph, a picture of Bauch Goldstein, the Jewish uh, zealot that went into the the tomb of the patriarchs in Hebron on uh, on Purim, the, the Jewish holiday Purim '94, and opened fire on hundreds of praying Muslims, killing 90, sorry, killing 29 and wounding over 100. He had a picture of this person on his wall with a quote of a verse from the Bible praising zealotry. Hey, but he took it out. He took it down two (laughs) years ago, yes, because he had this game, I would say, in which he, as if, moderated himself or, you know, matured. Yeah.
0: There's a a video that is very telling of him marching through East Jerusalem, which is one of the disputed territories in the, the, the bigger Palestinian-Israeli debate. And if there's one thing that Ben-Gvir seems to love is to parade with his entourage through those streets as if laying claim to them. In fact, he even provocatively relocated yeah. his office to East Jerusalem earlier this
1: year. As a member of parliament, he can locate his office anywhere he wants and the police and army also have to protect it, right? That's the idea.
0: So he created an outpost. That's right. In the middle of a disputed neighborhood. And it's worth remembering that his presence in East Jerusalem Figured into the violence last summer. Depending on where you were in the political spectrum, you saw Ben Vera as either a provocateur trying to incite a new bout of riots or as the hero who won't back down because of violence. Exactly. But recently, he's been he, there's a video of him ahead of the elections, I think, walking in those areas and his supporters bursting in cries of death to the Arabs, and he quiets them down and says, no, we're not doing that. No, no,
1: he says, says, no, 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 not death to Arabs, death to terrorists, death to terrorists. In Hebrew, it maintains the cadence, so it works out. What this was, was him explaining, yes, it's him explaining to a follower of his that it's a dog whistle for a reason. You know, you have to use the dog whistle. You can't say it out loud.
0: Even without exploring the depths of his heart and understanding what he really meant. It's enough to say that when the definition of who counts as a terrorist or who counts as a traitor is elastic enough, anybody can be thrown into that category when needed. Exactly. 18 plus Okay, really we're talking about Netanyahu's comeback. And yet so far we only focused on the judicial question and the charisma of Ben-Gvir and the hyper-nationalist right. But there is also a lot of power to Netanyahu himself that we just didn't address. Not only is he, I mean, he's Sure, we know it for a fact that he's divisive for a lot of people, but also he is, it's not not for nothing, he was able to keep power for 12 years. Not for nothing is associated for many Israelis as the person who stabilized the sense of security in Israel. Mm -hmm. And most recently, he facilitated the Abraham Accords, which was an absolute coup in terms of Israeli foreign relations normalizing ties with the Emirates and Bahrain and Morocco and setting the stage for potentially open relations with Saudi Arabia. That's right. I know that obviously fits into his grand design of creating a strong coalition against Iran. So when we talk about the Netanyahu triumph, there's a lot that he can take credit for.
1: No, definitely. Netanyahu is first of all, a brilliant man, a very talented politician and he knows how to navigate both the political arena and, uh, you know, and the state. He knows he 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 brought Israel exactly where he wanted to bring it, economically flourishing, and politically or or statewide, geopolitically, not in any situation of a. Coming peace agreement that will divide the country into two states. This is exactly what Netanyahu wants. It's exactly the situation now. He did this. And, you know, if you are for those uh, political agendas, you should be very um, satisfied with him.
0: And it should be clarified because a lot of people refer to Netanyahu as a far right politician. And that's not entirely true. No, it's not true. It's not true. His long reign has been marked by maintaining a very delicate balance between not wanting to get any progress on the Palestinian side mm-hmm. and keeping things as they are but at the same time curbing in a very sophisticated way the more extreme members of his bloc that's right. from going too far that's right if anything the Bibi doctrine can be seen as radical status quoism
1: that's right and this this basically is the great irony of this elections in which Netanyahu now finds himself in the hands of the most extreme right wing with the power to manifest, to do what he vowed to do, but doesn't really want to do because he is not that right wing. He wants to keep the status quo. He wants to keep Israel uh, as acceptable in the wider, um, you know, democratic uh, family of nations. He doesn't really want to get to... To, uh, he, he, of course, he has no problem with LGBTs, etc. This whole very right, very religious, uh, even I would say fundamentalist in a way, agenda is foreign to him. So now he's, he has a problem that he has all the power to do what he said he would do but never really wanted to do. And by the way, this is why I think there is a chance that Netanyahu will go for a joint government with either uh, Gantz or Lapid, with either Kahola Van or Yeshatid.
0: So to be clear, Gantz and Lapid are the heads of two centrist parties that belong to the anti-Bibi bloc, and they have vowed not to join a Netanyahu-led government. Now you proffered an interesting theory back in July that even though the centrists have vowed not to join Bibi, if Otsmayudit and the nationalist religious right is ascendant, Bibi might be able to leverage that and say, you know what, I know that you don't want to join me, but either you swallow your pride, centrists, and join a unity government under my leadership, which will probably include reforming the courts, or I'm going all the way and forming a government with the extreme right. That's right.
1: But, But let's qualify that. I thought this was uh, uh, feasible and even uh, even the, a, a good chance of happening, if Netanyahu would have won by sixty one sixty two majority, meaning a very small majority that makes him captive in the hands of any one or two members of parliament that you know uh, wake up uh, one morning and want to go nuts.
0: Right, and that's the problem with Israeli parliamentary system: is when you have narrow majorities. It takes one rogue member of parliament to bring down a government and that's what happened to the outgoing Lapid government in fact. Yeah. It only took one or two members of parliament to defect and that and was that's it. it. That's it. So you're saying that if Netanyahu's margin was more narrow he would have had more incentive to join the center.
1: But right now he has a 64 majority that places him in a much more comfortable zone. He he would anyway have a 61 majority to keep his government uh, even if three members of parliament would, you know, tell him you have to right now annex the whole West Bank or we're out. So Netanyahu is, is in a more comfortable position. So now I think the chances are smaller. Though again, I think that what Netanyahu really wants is not this extreme right coalition that he has, but a sort of a unified government, as we say in Israel, between the left and the right, with him on top, of course but with a major partner which is not the extreme right.
0: Okay, so we've done our punditry. Before I let you go, I want to ask you about your book. You, as I mentioned in the beginning, are a religion scholar, in addition to being a social commentator. Your book, which is phenomenal, and unfortunately is not in English yet, but hopefully soon is about the centrality of this idea that man was created in the image of God to the history of Western culture and the Judeo-Christian philosophical moral tradition. It's an amazing read, thought-provoking and profound. I had the privilege of talking to you about it before the publication. And for the past 30 minutes, we were talking about some of the worst mixing of politics and religious extremism. So cleanse us of that. Edify us with some pointers from your book?
1: I mean, you know, what I, what I went with to write the book is the question what, among other questions, what makes privileged, powerful groups lay down their privilege, forfeit their power? What, I mean, they don't have to, right? What makes men become convinced that women should have the right to vote, right? It's not because women had a great army and they, you know forced it uh, on them uh, it's it's liberal thought basically it's the thought that each one of us has an uh, deep dimensions of worth and even sacredness that need to be recognized uh, and and engaged and protected even by the state right and th- this is the discourse of rights that we know and what i try to show in the book that the idea that every person was created in the image of god played a seminal role In the development of that discourse, in the development of modern individualism, of modern liberalism, of our conception of the conscience as an authority uh, in our lives. That's what I try to to show in the book. And and I, I, you know, I I follow your wish that it would it it will be soon translated and out in in English. We're working on it. Uh, I hope it won't be too long. Amen.
0: Thank you, Tomo Persico. That was awesome.
1: Thank you, too, Adam. Thank you very much.